You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 30th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Guy Delaunay. Coming up, Ukrainians count the cost of Russia's latest missile strikes. We'll be hearing how they're coping after almost a year of war. And a Brazilian great has gone. I got the gift from God to play football. I always, I try to give my best, to give the best for the people, for the crowd. We'll be paying tribute to Pelé, who's died at the age of 82. Plus, BB's back. Everybody said, well, you can't get to the Arab world unless you first solve the Palestinian problem. You can't. They're the last holdouts. They want peace without Israel. No compromises in Israel as Benjamin Netanyahu returns to office. We'll also be paying tribute to the iconoclastic Vivienne Westwood and flicking through the morning's front pages. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. But first, a look at what else is happening in the news. Belarus has summoned Ukraine's ambassador after Minsk said it had downed a Ukrainian missile that had strayed over the border. Kiev said it suspected Russia of creating a deliberate provocation amid the ongoing war. European health officials say COVID-19 restrictions on travellers from China are unjustified. They reckon that Europeans already have high protection against COVID and that the risk of imported infections is low. And British fashion design Dame Vivienne Westwood has died aged 81. We'll have more on the style iconoclast's fashion legacy later in the show. Now, early this morning, residents in Kiev were told to head to air raid shelters amid a Russian aerial assault. Authorities in the Ukrainian capital said Russia launched an attack by drones and that Ukrainian forces had shot down more than 50 Russian missiles. I'm joined now by the Ukrainian journalist Natalia Gumenyuk, who's in Mykolaiv, and by Jenny Mathers, the senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. And Natalia, if I can turn to you first, please, just bring us the latest. We've had a a, a large aerial assault yesterday. Is, is it more of the same today? Um, no, um, and I'm talking from Kiev, from the Ukrainian capital. So, yeah, there was another attack uh, this night around 2 a.m., uh, mainly in on the Ukrainian capital and on some of the big towns like Dnipropetrovsk, where, for instance, in Kiev, there were Iranian drones, they're exploding on the air. Their task is to target the uh, infrastructure and power grids, but they were shut down uh, five of seven in Kiev, um, where also yesterday was really, uh, you know, it's hard for me already to say like one of the largest attacks because, you know, the attacks are t- taking place since mid of October. Sometimes they're bigger, sometimes they're smaller, but, you know, the danger is still there. Uh, yesterday, there were 85 missile, uh, a cruise missile uh, sent to U- all over the Ukrainian territory uh, and uh, uh, 35 air uh, 
aviation bomb sent on Ukraine. I'm not also speaking from the attacks by artillery uh, from the Russian territory and where they can, you know, in, in the borderline regions where they can uh, access Ukrainian territory with the ground artillery. Uh, but what is important to say that, yes, the, the Ukrainian air defense is, though it's on the stretch, but it's coping. So, uh, out of uh, the, you know, where more than 50 uh, cru cruise missiles, rockets were uh, shut down. Um, so if you really look to the results, you know, it's a few hours of a, of a nightmare and mm. things might happen. Things might happen everywhere because also if the Ukrainian uh, air defense working, uh, there can be, you know, uh, something, some, some debris uh, can fall onto some, you know, building. Um, there were two people killed in Kharkiv region yesterday. There were around 28 houses, uh, private houses, or those where people live or not uh, were, were damaged. I, 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 just, what, I just wonder, Natalia, for, for people in Kiev and indeed the other cities in Ukraine which are facing this, this air barrage, are, are, are people leaving or are they becoming inured to the danger? No, look, I, I, and that's something to explain. What is the cruelty and horrors of this attack? Of course, people are staying, and uh, there is a huge pressure to the infrastructure, first of all. Uh, but, for instance, we have the Christmas holidays. And if, for instance, the last week, uh, I live in Kiev, it differs from the area you live, but we had a, a really strong power cuts within the days. Everything has been done that there won't be a power cut during the Christmas and there would be New Year coming tomorrow. So, for instance, this week, for the first time driving around Evening City, I see the whole city in the um, with the lights, which actually looks extremely nice and optimistic because that's a part of the story to repair, to make the things work, you know, to put a bit more pressure on, um, um, to, to put more effort in order to uh, to have people calm and. Uh, um, and, and nice holidays at the, at the very same time. So, of course, uh, it's hard to, I think, like, if you don't imagine, it's hard to, to explain. I think this fact that the, the that it's possible that these drones or rockets are shut down by the uh, air defense is a bit like, feels like a bit of a miracle when you wait till mm -hmm. the moment that there is, because there is always an air siren. So you sit, you wait, then you hear it's shut down, it's shut down. Uh, in a way, how it looks, uh, you know, the, the, the drone is, it, it sounds very as if it's a motorbike. I mean, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting these sort of pictures. We heard tales growing up of what our parents and grandparents went through during the Second World War with the, uh, the, v, the V1 and V2 rockets and doodlebug bombs, and people would know the difference in sounds between the different missiles or bombs and what threat they posed. <laughs> Not really, because usually you do not hear much because it's the air defense. For me, if you imagine the picture, I, I said, like, I usually try to avoid this comparison. It's rather when you have, like, a small 9-11 attacks all the time. You know, a bit different. So it's not like just imagine the picture from the Second World War, but you live in a peaceful city where things are working. And, you know, when it looks like a very normal life in Europe or elsewhere, and then there is always the risk that the house might be hit by something, you know, and it might 
might be, might be not. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, uh, so, like I, I also rethinking the, the the way how how this can be defended. But just by giving you example, uh, you know, I'm I'm a journalist, I'm an editor, I have a large team, and just yesterday when there was attack in one of the outskirts, you know, the house near one of my colleagues has been damaged, a private house, nobody was hurt, but the house was damaged. You know, my accountant has kind of heard like a huge explosion so her door you know was was broken uh because she lives on the outskirts of the city and usually these drones or uh, cruise missiles are shut down before they reach kiev so it's happening at, at one moment fortunately it's not that tragic uh, but also not because russia doesn't try you know like if you mm. really speak about the hundreds of the rockets the cruise rockets air bombs it's really really a lot it's just amazing that, they, that that so many of them are shut down, but it put it take it, it keeps you under incredible pressure, of course, because you don't want to to you know check this lab. Yeah, indeed. Uh, thank you for that that view on the ground, Natalia. I, I just want to turn to Jenny now because uh, from a diplomatic point of view, we've got Belarus entering the game here, perhaps with this complaint to the Ukrainian ambassador about this stray, supposedly stray air defence missile. What do we know about this? Well, I mean, at the moment, it, what we know is that it, it, it sounds plausible that um, a Ukrainian air defense missile might have um, gone astray um, and landed in Belarus. Um, I think the question really is, what is Belarus going to do now as a result of, of this apparent incident? And the first step that they've taken is to, uh, you know, increase the diplomatic pressure, raise the temperature, uh, demand that the Ukrainian ambassador attend a meeting and sort of explain the situation and, and sort of uh, reflect their uh, their outrage, uh, shall we say, mm. that, that this has happened. Um, so whether it's going to go any further than that, you know, is is another question. I think there's a constant, um, you know, game of, of shadow boxing going on here with the Belarusians in that they don't actually really want to join the fight uh, fully. Um, however, they do need, for various reasons, to keep Russia on side. If this and is a, if this a case mm-hmm. of them sort of showing willing? I mean, if we're talking about stray stray missiles, I mean, I completely get you there. A few months ago, in, in I'm, I live in Ljubljana, just down the road in Zagreb, there was a stray drone landed in the centre of Zagreb, which looked awfully like it was a Ukrainian drone, and nobody really acknowledged that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's all gone a bit quiet on that front. I'm sure you remember that incident. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, stray ordnance, it's, it's part of, of war, it's part of missiles defense but is this you know is this a signal just of belarus uh, showing willing and trying to say yes we, we we're definitely still very much moscow's uh, people in the region or is it is it actually something more is it is this a prelude to belarus being more actively involved well, of course, you can't ever rule out, you know, what might happen in the future. But I think it's definitely not in the interests of uh, Belarusian leader Lukashenko to uh, become directly involved in the war. I mean, already, obviously, uh, Belarus provides um, various air bases and so on as, as launch platforms to attack um, Ukraine. But, you know, to send Belarusian troops into Ukraine, I think, would be enormously unpopular at home and would really destabilize his position. So it would not be something that he would uh, would, would reach for. However, making the sort of diplomatic noise, making a fuss, um, you know, adding to the sort of performance, I think that's something which is readily within his capabilities. And it's something that he um, would probably relish uh, and would enjoy because it, it demonstrates to Moscow that he's on side. 
talking about uh, performative, we've been hearing these noises. And again, as I say, my, my normal patch is the Western Balkans. So, of course, we've been following all the stuff that's been happening between Kosovo and Serbia in the past few weeks with the so-called number plate dispute, with the barricades, with the raising of combat readiness of the Serbian army. Kosovo saying this is Serbia cats pouring for Russia, that Russia is trying to cause uh, chaos in the Western Balkans to distract from what's going on in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia complaining that it's not like that at all. It's the United States, which is causing chaos in the Western Balkans uh, for reasons, you know, reasons. What, what, what actually is going on here? Because I get asked all the time what Russia's playing at in the Western Balkans. Do you get a sense that it's really actively trying to make mischief? I think Russia is pulling all the levers that it possibly can. And in the current circumstances, when it's it's diplomatically isolated from significant parts of the international community, its levers are limited now. And so it's looking to see, okay, what can we do? Where can we create mischief, as you say? Where can we uh, strengthen our existing alliances? Where can we encourage our remaining allies to to do some things which would be um, indirectly beneficial to to us and to show also that, you know, Russia is still in the game here in terms of different parts of Europe. So I think it is part of this bigger picture of Russia trying to demonstrate that it has the ability to influence events outside Ukraine and outside Russia um, and, and that it still has allies. It still has some sort of reach. Um, but of course, these these tensions between Kosovo and Serbia are longstanding. It's left over from the wars mm. in the 1990s and afterwards. Um, you know, these are things which are already there and, and in existence. Um, so it's just a matter of Russia looking to sort of poke poke a bit and, and see what it can stir up and, and encourage. Indeed, as I often say to people, Kosovo and Serbia can uh, quite happily argue by themselves without anybody encouraging them. Uh, thanks very much, Jenny, for joining us. That's Jenny Mathers, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at Aberystwyth University. We also heard in Kiev from the Ukrainian journalist Natalia Gumenyuk. Uh, you're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24, live from Studio One at Dory House in London. And it's right now on the dot of 7.14 in the morning here. Now, Brazil is in mourning following the death of the greatest football icon of them all. Pelé was 82 years old and he'd been suffering from colon cancer. He was one of the finest attacking talents the beautiful game has ever seen. A triple World Cup winner, he scored almost 1,300 goals in a career which lasted more than two decades and brought joy to countless millions of football fans. Brazil's government has declared three days of official mourning as the country marks the passing of the man they called their king. We'll look back at the we'll look at the international coverage of Pele's death later on the show, but first, for a look back on the life of the legend, here's Andrew Muller. There is no simple resolution to the argument over who is the greatest football player of all time, which is one of the reasons people enjoy having the argument. But there is one football player of whom it can be said that if you don't think it is him, you have to make a pretty solid case vis-a-vis -vis why not. 
You might adumbrate the merits of Lionel Messi, Diego Maradona, Zinedine Zidane or Johan Cruyff, and you might well have a point. But you know there's one other name you're always going to come up against. Edson Arantes do Nascimento, eventually known to an agog world as Pelé, was born on October 23, 1940, in Tres Corosange, and raised substantially in Bauru. His family were poor. The footballs of Pelé's early childhood were fashioned from socks stuffed with rags and newspapers and kicked with bare feet. But as he turned out for local junior teams, he was noticed, most significantly by former Brazilian international Valdemar de Brito. De Brito took a teenage Pelé to Santos, already reigning Sao Paulo state champions, and informed the club's directors that the kid was going to be the greatest footballer in the world. As Pelé is running, it's Pelé! It is not inconceivable that this story may have been retrospectively burnished, but Pelé nevertheless made an early impression. He scored on his club debut in 1956, aged only 15. Less than a year later, he scored on his international debut, aged only 16. Less than a year after that, at the 1958 World Cup in Sweden, he scored Brazil's only goal to beat Wales in the quarter-final, a second-half hat-trick against France in the semi-final, and two more more in the final as Brazil dismantled Sweden 5-2. He was 17. Pelé had become, as he would remain, Brazil's best-known citizen, plausibly, indeed, one of the most famous people alive. He was, before he'd turned 20, certainly the hottest property in world football. As he continued to lead Santos on a sequence of state and national championships which verged on the monotonous, he was besieged by colossal offers from European clubs. One picturesque yarn has buccaneering Italian industrialist Gianni Agnelli offering Pelé a stake in Fiat if he'd moved to Juventus. In 1961, briefly serving Brazilian President Janio Quadruche, hoping to forestall such a calamity, signed a law declaring Pelé a national treasure. Pelé stuck with Santos. Remaining in Brazil during his prime arguably added to Pelé's global mystique. Give or take Santos's overseas tours to ring revenue from their totem, Pelé was like some regularly recurrent natural phenomenon, emerging every four years to show everyone how it was done before retreating into relative obscurity. Pelé won another World Cup in 1962, though in truth played a marginal role in Brazil's triumph, having been injured early in the tournament. He might have helped Brazil make it three on the bounce in 1966, had so many other teams not decided that if they couldn't beat Pelé, they would simply kick lumps out of him. Pelé limped home from England, doubting if he wanted to play in another World Cup. He did, of course, and football fans have been grateful ever since for the footage. In Mexico in 1970, Pelé and a stellar Brazil squad, Gerson, Tostao, Rivellino, Jazinho, sauntered through the tournament with joyous insouciance. Pelé scored the first in Brazil's spanking of Italy in the final and had a cameo in the fourth, gleefully teeing up team captain Carlos Alberto to belt home one of the greatest team goals of all time, the beautiful game in Car. It's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was! 
Pelé finally took the money and ran in 1975, signing with the New York Cosmos in the North American Soccer League. The NASL didn't last another decade, but Pelé's brief stint in the US before hanging up his boots was credited with igniting interest in round-ball football in a traditionally suspicious environment. Pelé gave every impression of enjoying his long post-football life. He continued to be showered with awards, honours and money, was made an ambassador or envoy for barely countable causes, grinned his way through guest star appearances in films, turned up at things, shilled for products, including to widespread bemusement, Viagra, and was briefly appointed Brazil's Minister for Sport. But like all great athletes, perhaps especially the very greatest, Pelé was frozen in the public imagination in his youth. Sport is in many respects cruel to its champions. Even the very best are usually more or less done before they're 30. But among the hundreds of millions who watched Pelé at his peak, at the time or since, are many who would trade a good few of their years for one of Pelé's moments. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's contributing editor there. We'll return to this story later in the show, but first, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Belarus has summoned Ukraine's ambassador to complain about a stray missile. Minsk says it brought down the S-300 air defence rocket after it entered its airspace. It's the first such incident since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Kyiv is accusing Russia of creating a deliberate provocation amid the ongoing war. European health officials say COVID-19 restrictions on travellers from China are unjustified. The European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control describes the risk of imported infections as low and that Europeans already have high levels of protection against the virus. Several countries, including Japan, Italy and the United States, have announced that travellers from China will have to produce a negative COVID test on arrival. And British fashion designer Dame Vivienne Westwood has died aged 81. Representatives from the Style Icons Fashion House said Westwood died peacefully on Thursday evening, surrounded by her family in South London. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. He's back and as combative as ever. Benjamin Netanyahu has been sworn in as Israel's Prime Minister for a sixth stint in office. The man Israelis call Bibi has never been known as a soft touch and his new governing coalition looks like it'll be more hardline than any of his previous administrations. It includes ultranationalist and orthodox religious parties committed to advancing and developing settlements in the West Bank. Opponents say Bibi is weak and has only joined forces with the radical right because of his ongoing corruption case. But it's fair to say that many, including Israel's international allies, are bracing themselves for a rough ride. I'm joined now by Alison Kaplan-Summer, journalist for Haaretz in Tel Aviv. Alison, a refresher, if you don't mind. Why is Bibi in bed with the religious right? Um, he's in bed with the religious right because uh, they are the only coalition partners uh, he has. Um, the uh, the center, the center left, have all uh, sworn off any idea of um, of joining a Netanyahu-led coalition. These were campaign promises, very strong messages, and so he uh, he needs these allies uh, in order to take power. And uh, more importantly, um, he can't afford to uh, even if they were willing to take more centrist coalition partners because they would probably not support legislation um, that uh, Netanyahu has a great interest in passing that would either mitigate 
eradicate or totally eliminate the uh, the corruption trial that's uh, that's underway for him. So he's uh, paired with the religious right uh, for political survival. The, this coalition that he's made with them will that actually affect his policies? Will the tail, in a, in effect, be able to wag the dog? Well, absolutely, because without them, he is going to, uh, you know, lose power. And uh, these are very ideological parties. They are not uh, comfortable, you know, career politicians who will make compromises in order to keep their jobs. They have an agenda. They want to move as quickly as possible towards incorporating the West Bank into uh, into Israel proper, into blurring the lines between uh, Israel inside the Green Line and uh, and the occupied West Bank. And they're going to do everything possible in order to move this government. Uh, in that direction and use whatever leverage they have over Netanyahu to make that happen. And his remarks as he was sworn in did not, as we said, sound like a, a man of compromise or a, a man who's looking for any kind of, uh, you know, accommodation uh, with Palestine, with Arabs in the region. It, it sounds like he is actually swallowing the religious right Kool-Aid. Yeah, well, he, for the very first time, he has formed a coalition in which there is no moderating force. In previous coalitions, he's been able to look towards uh, his left, you know, to a centrist um, coalition partner and say, well, I would, uh, I believe in all of this very right-wing ideology, but I can't do it. I need to keep my coalition together. And now there is no moderating force um, mm. and all of the pressure is uh, is on his right. Is that what he really believes then? Or has he just been saying this all along? It's been, been kind of a, and now his bluff's been being called. Listen, the original Netanyahu of the 1990s was very much uh, a rightist, but he's always also been very pragmatic, very savvy, very diplomatic. Um, if you remember, he made remarks sort of indicating willingness towards a two-state solution. And so he's always tried to be the, the in, in, in the past, the balanced uh, right-wing conservative, um, but moderating for sort of a, a responsible right-wing and yet a responsible adult. And, uh, and now the new Netanyahu, who again has has all of these uh, pressures on him, uh, not the least of which is his own uh, corruption trial. Hmm. Um, he may not be doing exactly what it is he would want to do in an ideal world, but he is doing what it is, takes for him in order to stay in power, survive politically, and hopefully, in his mind, um, evade these uh, these corruption trials uh, and uh, and avoid jail. Now we've spoken. Uh, you've spoken a, f- a few times there about corruption trial, Alison. How does it work in Israel? Because you know, in some uh, countries, if you're a serving head of government or head of state, um, you can't be put on trial while you're in office. But uh, the, the trial's ongoing in Israel. Could it derail him? Uh, I don't think it's going to derail him. It hasn't so far, right? He's been reelected despite this trial. So uh, one could say, if you're in the name of democracy, the people have spoken, and the trial did not uh, did not deter him from political victory. But it means that high on his agenda will be passing some sort of legislation. Um, there have been different uh, different possibilities. I mean, you could pass a law saying that a sitting prime minister cannot be hmm. put on trial. That would cancel the trial immediately. Some of the charges against him, for example, breach of trust. There have been proposals to uh, to eliminate that uh, that charge from the the law books, in which case his uh, his trial would be would be significantly mitigated. There's all kinds of options now that he has power and uh, to pass any kind of legislation in order to uh, to get something passed to serve his interests. As the law stands now, he is still going to continue to be on trial, but uh, but we'll see what happens once his uh, his legislative agenda becomes clear. Well, we- better buckle up for that rough ride, Alison. Thanks very much for joining us. That's Alison Kaplan-Summer speaking to us from Tel Aviv. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24.
As we mentioned earlier, the Brazilian football superstar Pelé has died at the age of 82. The former Santos FC legend was regularly acclaimed as the best ever player. He died in hospital in Sao Paulo after a long battle with cancer. Monocle senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco is currently in Rio de Janeiro and he filed this short reflection after hearing the news of Pelé's death. Brazil's icon Pelé died at the age of 82. Undeniably, Pelé was Brazil's greatest ambassador, literally. His name is one of the most recognized in the world. In the middle of the summer holidays in the country, the story will dominate the headlines for weeks to come. Pelé is the closest we have of a monarch. Yes, controversial at times, even King Pelé had its critics. But even the critics admit the importance he had for the country. Former presidents used Pelé to promote Brazil's image abroad. When I shared the news with my family, immediate silence. Everyone knew that his health was not at its best, but it's still a shock to lose someone like him. Personally, I thank Pelé for what he did to the image of my country. He's shown us that we matter in the global stage. He certainly helped fight against Brazil's inferiority complex. Rest in peace, Football King. From Brazil, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. That's Fernando with a view from Brazil. And uh, let's now have a flick through some of the day's newspapers now with Vincent McAvaney, political reporter and regular Monocle 24 commentator. Welcome back to The Globalist, Vincent. Um, I, I think we should start a little bit personally here because you actually met the great man, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It's one of those sort of situations you find yourself in as a young journalist. I've just come off uh, a flight back from America and I had to cover someone who was absent because uh, they were sick and I sort of got straight off a plane and got into London and then was told, oh, you need to go and interview Pele because he's in mm-hmm. London. And it was a, a sort of complete surprise. I'm not a sports journalist, although I sort of sometimes have to dabble in it. Um, and he was absolutely charming. He was in London for a auction of a lot of his memorabilia. Uh, he really took the time to speak to journalists. He wasn't someone who sort of hid behind a PR. He was. He came and shook your hand. He chatted to you, sat down. He was engaging as an interviewee. He was enjoying himself. You know, he was. This was a sort of 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. So he was a fair old age. Uh, but he was still, you know, interested in, in chatting about his life. He always struck uh, one as someone who was eager to please. Whenever he was asked for an opinion on the latest footballing talent, he always, I mean, sometimes he was very flattering to young players who weren't, frankly, fit to lace his boots. Yeah, he, he was. He he just really came across as a charming guy. His passion for football was completely evident. And, you know, I've interviewed other very high-profile sports people, people who've in no way sort of achieved the real heights, you know, when you look at it on paper that that Pele achieved. And they can be very difficult, very uh, sort of cagey characters to interview. There's a lot of arrogance there. But he really didn't have any of that. And I think it's reflected really in the world of newspapers today. it's, It's incredibly, incredibly rare to have all front pages have Mm. the same story on the front page and the back page. And I think that's because a lot of sports journalists 
really respected him and he was just you know he was a mononym known around the world and i'm looking at uh, one of the pages you wanted to bring to our attention uh, vincent in the guardian uh, pele eterno is the headline and it's just got a, 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 a montage a photo montage of the front pages uh, from not just the UK, but also El Globo from Brazil is in there, Liberation uh, from France is in there. Um, quite strikingly, the, the Times, the Sun, the Mirror and the Record all going for precisely the same fo- uh, photograph from the, uh, the 1970 uh, World Cup of Pelé uh, being raised up by one of his teammates in triumph. Yeah, they, they, I mean, so many iconic images of him, uh, but they have all gone for the, the same one. Um, and, you know, all saying, you know, the greatest of all time, uh, the legend. And it is interesting as well when you look into the papers themselves, you know, just how much he was used by Brazil uh, and football as an ambassador. He's met everyone. You see him with multiple U.S. presidents. Barack Obama's tweeted a photo with him praising him. Joe Biden has as well as pictures of him with Nixon, pictures of him with the Queen. He was a real towering figure of the 20th century. That's quite interesting as well on The Guardian, on the front page, under which they've got this uh, photograph of Brazil, striking, uh, sorry, photograph of Pelé with his Brazil teammates, uh, with this enormous crowd uh, behind him. I'm thinking that's probably in, in Mexico in 1970. But, you know, tens of thousands of people acclaiming the great man underneath the headline uh, says, one in 10 Tory peers have given more than £100,000 to the party. It's um, quite a juxtaposition, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Um, Let's move on to uh, the influencer Andrew Tate, um, who is notorious, especially if you're a parent who has uh, children who think he's terribly amusing and you keep trying to tell them he may be involved in shady stuff. Well, it seems the Romanian prosecutors agree. Yeah, this is quite a remarkable story. And it's sort of, a you know, the second uh, act in two days. Uh, this is someone who, as you say, is an online influencer. He seems to be a, a scam artist. He's a former kickboxer, a reality uh, TV person. Uh, and he's sort of been gain- gaining huge numbers of followers this past year. Particularly, he got banned on Twitter, but then Elon Musk allowed him to return. But he seems to have gamed the algorithms on TikTok to mm. build this following. He ran, runs a school for kind of what appears to be scamming online. Hustlers University, I believe it Hustlers is. Hustlers University, that's the one. Yeah, but it sounds a sort of pyramid scheme mm. uh, and trying to la- portray this lavish lifestyle. Now, at some point, he seems to have moved to Romania. Uh, and two days ago, uh, he got into this Twitter fight with Greta Thunberg, where he posted a picture of himself filling up a, a Bugatti. And he says, what's your address? I want to sell you details of all my gas guzzling cars. Uh, she replied with a very funny tweet saying, yes, please do enlighten me. Email me at smalldickenergy at getalife.com. <laughs> uh, and really kind of won the internet uh, this month, I think, with that. It's been liked 3.2 million times. Uh, he really was kind of humiliated. He then, a few hours later, posted a very weird response video. And at one point, someone off camera hands him a pizza and Romanian authorities looked at the address of the pizza place, got a hold of his address, and have now arrested him on charges of human trafficking, rape, and forming an organized crime group. Uh, so that one little tweet from Greta Thunberg mm. uh, seems to have taken down someone wanted by the authorities. Greta Thunberg won, Andrew Tate nil, it would seem. Um, and uh, just finally, because we're, we're, we're running very long in the program today for obvious reasons, but uh, I think it's worth highlighting this headline in the New York Times. How bad is China's COVID outbreak? It's a scientific guessing game. 
Yeah, because of the lack of data coming out of China, you've now got health authorities trying to figure out exactly what the picture is. Now, some experts in the UK say that they think as many as 9,000 people a day are now dying of the disease in China. They have made this absolute screeching U-turn out of the zero COVID policy. They didn't have the same kind of vaccination rollout that other countries had when they came out of lockdowns. Uh, because uh, people just thought that they didn't need to get the vaccine because things were going to stay as they were with these lockdowns of communities. But that has all changed. And there's suggestions here that the CDC, the American um, watchdog sort of for uh, health, is going to start testing um, lavatory water from planes coming from China to detect levels of COVID in it and also to spot any new mutations that come from the disease as well. And it says countries... Uh, are weighing up whether to or not to put in testing regimes for travellers uh, from China who are set to start going around the world again in the next couple of weeks. So far, the US says it will be doing this. The UK, though, is still undecided uh, on whether to do it. But it does seem like maybe the UK, once again, not learning a lesson from the early pandemic, that maybe it's best to go ahead and do this when Italy and Japan are also saying they'll require a negative COVID test from those coming from China. Well, thanks for all the uh, the review of the papers, Vincent, and also uh, importantly, uh, you giving us your uh, encounter with Pele. It was wonderful to have that on today's program. Thanks very much for joining us. This is the Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over one hundred and fifty years of heritage, built on the unique dedication of our people. We bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. in the morning here in London. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Guy Delaunay. And finally, on today's show, she would probably have hated being described as a fashion icon because Dame Vivienne Westwood was very much an iconoclast. She's died at the age of 81, leaving a considerable legacy in the world of fashion. Joining me now from Paris to look at how Westwood tore up the script is Dana Thomas, author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. Uh, Dana, you know, I say she tore up the script. I mean, she did that literally with her, you know, her, her clothes in the 1970s in particular. Yes, absolutely. She did. She um, she's the one who gave punk its look. And uh, and punk was this revolutionary movement that came out of the UK and uh, that was so anti-establishment that it just, you know, it hurt in a way. And she's the one who who dressed the punk movement, who gave it its its physical look as opposed to just its its sound, which was, you know, the Sex Pistols and the music. Um, And Chrissy Hine from The Pretender said, you know, without Vivian Westwood, punk would have probably existed, but it certainly wouldn't have looked like it did with the safety pins in your cheeks and razor blades and bondage and torn up this and that and the and the spiky hair, the whole kit. That was Vivian for you. She um, she 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 grew up in the 50s and the 60s and 
said, you know, the hippies made, you know, gay, were politically disruptive and she was part of that movement. She was, you know, 30 years old when punk happened, but she, you know, she was like the perfect counterpoint to the, to Margaret Thatcher and all that Margaret Thatcher stood for. And she gave people a way to show it through their clothes. And she named her collection Seditionaries, which kind of gives you the clue, doesn't it? It certainly does. The collection and the shop. They had this, she and Malcolm McLaren, her partner at the time, uh, had a shop on the King's Road, which they, they and they changed the name several times. Yeah. Each time there was a new collection, they changed the name. Uh, at the end, it was called World's End, which kind of says everything. Indeed, it does. <laughs> I, mean, the thing, I mean, the thing is, I can't, I'm trying, struggling to think of a designer who didn't just, you know, design the clothes which dressed a movement. When I mean, we've seen that with, you know, if you want to talk about streetwear and Sean Stussy or what have you, uh, but if if you're looking at a designer where they actually actively had the people who were at the heart of a cultural movement, like Chrissy Hind, like John Lydon, like Jordan, all together working, hanging out in sex slash seditionary slash let it rock. It was all going on right there, and she was right at the centre of it as a co-creator. Absolutely, a co-creator, giving it, giving it a voice in a sense, um, taking it, making it visible, taking the voice and making it visible. I mean, Coco Chanel did that in the 1920s with the suffragettes when she got rid of the bodice and and the corset and started making clothes in Jersey, which, you know, was underwear material. That was just about about as radical. What it proves to me is that it takes women to actually shake things up in the fashion business and that the men are the ones who try to keep women in corsets and teetering in high heels. And the women are the ones who give the voice to revolution. And this revolution, it's very tempting to just look at uh, what Vivian Westwood did uh, in the 1970s. But obviously, she, she maintained a long and very successful career after that. What were some of the highlights which followed? Absolutely. She I mean, she's still working, up, you know, until yesterday. Mm. Um, she well, she took this idea of British fashion and made it really, really global. She was the first global British designer. Sure, there were others before who, you know, dressed the queen, and maybe had a bit of a presence, slightly known, but none of them were showing in Paris. None of them were dressing people for the red carpet or having clothes put in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in big fashion shows. Um, you know, she... Uh, she was the heart of Anglomania in the sense. Um, you wouldn't have had Alexander McQueen without having Vivian Westwood. You wouldn't have had John Galliano if you hadn't had Vivian Westwood. John took so much from Vivian in his early years. I mean, some people would say, you know, it's just dressed up Vivian Westwood. Mm -hmm. It was really massively influential. But also she took the idea of English, I mean, she created the idea of English couture, English fashion mm. that was very fashionable and not just for ladies who go to tea at Buckingham Palace. And I do love the idea that when people talk to Vivian Westwood about some of her clothes being impractical or not something that, you know, people should be wearing, she would actually say, look, I see people on the streets and she probably look at me wearing a very sensible zip through cardigan this morning and say, oh, my goodness, you know, that thing is absolutely unwearable. And uh, she she would redefine the idea of what is wearable in clothing. And you did see her clothes on the street. I mean, people wear Vivian Westwood. You see it 
all the time. And one of the things you see really all the time is her logo, that lovely planet mm. that, you know, Saturn with the rings around it, as necklaces, T-shirts, earrings. It's everywhere. You'll be just talking to somebody. You'll be standing next to somebody on the subway and there's Vivian's little tiny discreet but says everything logo. Now, she she took the whole British look, the punk look. She made it not just less scary, but she turned it into couture and she showed it on Paris runways and she put lots of zeros at the end of it. That stuff that she was sewing up in the back of the shop on the King's Road, she did the sewing herself in the 70s and sold to the Sex Pistols and and all the, the, the rockers of the era with Chrissy Hind as one of her sales girls. She turned that into haute couture. You know, she was interviewed and seriously considered to take over Christian Dior. Incredible. And, and and then they didn't. And I think that that may be the greatest mistake Bernard Arnault ever made. How did... Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to have seen that. Uh, one I'd thing love I, to have seen that. <laughs> one, one it would have been genius. One thing I'm wondering, though, Dana, and one thing I've long wondered with Vivian Westwood, is she did do this diffusion line with the little logo that you mentioned. And, and how did she reconcile that with her thoughts about how one really should be dressing and all the iconoclastic stuff which she'd been doing? Well, you know, she also realized if you're going to have the power to to change the world, you've got to have the power by reaching as many people as possible and also making some money. I mean, she grew up very simply. She came from a simple family. She was originally, I mean, just stop and you know, stop the presses for a minute. She was originally a school teacher, <laughs> preschool, elementary school teacher. I mean, can you imagine Vivian Westwood as your teacher? How fabulous would that have been? I think that would have been fabulous. <laughs> Vivian Westwood as a nursery school teacher. I'm just looking through the glass. Uh, Emma, would you have fancied that? Yeah, hands I mean, up there. Nora, been... what do you reckon? Hands up there too. I think I think genius, right? I think we all agree that she's exactly the sort of nursery school teacher one should have had. Exactly. And you know, you think that Princess Diana was one too. There you go, it says everything all at once, right? Indeed and it does. So uh she 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 realized you have to reach as many people as possible. You have to make a decent living in order to be successful, that you can be as loud and brash and and iconoclastic as you want. But if you're not selling the clothes and people aren't wearing them, you're not getting anywhere. No one's paying attention to you. So she was really, really, really great on the business front, too. And what proves that she was is that she and Malcolm McLaren split when she was in 1983. And her career at that moment is when her... Vivian Westwood became Vivian Westwood mm. and it took off and it carried on until today and it will carry on forever. And I'll, if you ask the, you know, the average young person today, I've got a 22 year old next door and you say Malcolm McLaren, she'd say who? Mm. But she came into me last night and said, oh, my mom. Oh, my gosh, mama, did you hear about Vivian Westwood? As you say, people were always paying attention, Dana. Thanks very much for joining us on The Globalist. We could go on for a long time, but I think we've overrun considerably on this programme and we'll wrap that up. Dana Thomas, thank you for joining us from Paris to pay tribute to fashion iconoclast Vivian Westwood. Well, that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Emma Sir, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And our studio manager was Nora Hull. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live with me at midday in London and The Globalist returns at the same time on Monday. I'm Guy Delaunay. Thank you very much for tuning in.